Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 1930 through 1939. Today's story is of a male murderer from 1932. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In May 1932, Amelia Earhart was the first female pilot to complete the nonstop solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. She flew from Newfoundland to Northern Ireland in just 15 hours. The 34-year-old pilot was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for this accomplishment. Unfortunately, in July 1937, On a trip to fly around the world, Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, lost radio contact with the U.S. Coast Guard and disappeared. The pair has never been found. That same year, Charles Lindbergh, who was the very first pilot to complete the solo flight across the Atlantic, had his 20-month-old son kidnapped from the Lindbergh mansion in New Jersey during March 1932. His wife discovered the child to be missing and found a ransom note, but investigators struggled to find any clues as to who committed the crime until another note was found asking for $70,000. The Lindberghs delivered the money, but did not find their baby at the location that was given to them. Instead, the child's body was found less than a mile from their home and where he was thought to have died on the same night as the kidnapping. Two years later, a man named Bruno Hauptmann tried using a marked bill from the ransom and was arrested for the crimes, convicted, and sentenced to death. This high-profile case was a factor in making kidnapping a federal crime. Another thing that happened in 1932 was an unfortunate medical mistake that turned into an even greater travesty. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Medical malpractice is considered one of the major causes of personal injury and wrongful death in the United States. More specifically, it ranks third as the leading cause of death behind heart disease and cancer causing more than 250,000 deaths every year. Neurosurgeons and OBGYNs face a higher risk of malpractice lawsuits, most likely due to the severity of their treatments, where a negative outcome can have catastrophic consequences. The most common types of medical malpractice are surgical tools and other items left inside of a patient after surgery such as needles, scalpels, clamps, scissors, sponges, electrical equipment, and knife blades. Surgery on incorrect body parts, birth injury, stroke, medication errors, anesthesia errors, and misdiagnosis or failure to diagnose. 
some of the largest settlements to come out of malpractice lawsuits, according to bluegrassjustice.com, are as follows. In August 2000, Alan Navarro went to the emergency room after having symptoms indicative of a stroke. Despite telling nurses his family had a history of strokes, the doctors diagnosed him with sinusitis and gave him a prescription of painkillers. The next day, Navarro had to undergo surgery to relieve swelling in his brain and spent nearly three months in a coma. As a result, Navarro has limited cognitive abilities, is confined to a wheelchair, and is at risk of suffocating every time he swallows food due to the damage. In 2006, Alan Navarro was awarded $216.7 million. In 2014, a jury ordered John Hopkins Hospital to pay $190 million to 8,000 plaintiffs on behalf of Dr. Nikita Levy, a gynecologist who was employed there for over 25 years. It was revealed that he had been secretly taking pictures and videos of his patients over the years using a pin-like camera he wore during examinations. Levy was promptly fired in 2013, and when police investigation found more than 1,200 videos and 140 images of patients in his home, he committed suicide. After finalizing these proceedings, the plaintiffs named in this suit were mailed checks in 2017, ranging from $1,876 to $27,934. In 1998, Tiffany Applewhite went into anaphylactic shock after being injected with steroids for an eye condition, and her heart stopped. Her mother called 911, and the fire department medics arrived without the necessary life support equipment, including oxygen or a defibrillator. Although her mother wanted to take Tiffany to the hospital, paramedics advised that she wait for another ambulance to arrive with the proper equipment. The other ambulance arrived 20 minutes later, gave Tiffany the necessary care, and then transported her to the hospital. As a result of waiting, she retained severe brain damage and paralysis, including the inability to walk, talk, and take care of herself normally. In 2014, Tiffany Applewhite was awarded $172 million after a Bronx jury determined that paramedics were liable for providing bad advice to her mother. Faith DeGrand, 10 years old, was taken to the Children's Hospital of Detroit Medical Center in 2010 for scoliosis surgery, but the rods and screws were inserted by the surgeon in such a way that her spinal cord became compressed, resulting in numbness of Faith's extremities. Instead of immediate removal, the surgeon did not remove the hardware until 10 days later. As a result, Faith became a quadriplegic with permanent loss of bladder and bowel control. In 2018, after a two-week trial, she was awarded $135 million in damages. 
Some more examples of horrible malpractice lawsuits that have occurred are At age 12, Jessica Santillian discovered that she suffered from cardiomyopathy, a condition resulting in a weakened, enlarged heart and poorly functioning lungs. As a Mexican national, her parents made the choice to smuggle her into the United States illegally in search for treatment of her condition. At age 17, they raised enough funds for a heart and lung transplant at the prestigious Duke University Hospital. However, in the middle of the transplant, doctors discovered that Jessica's blood type, type O, did not match the type of the organs, type A. Jessica's body rejected the transplant almost immediately, putting her in a coma as a result. Two weeks later, doctors performed a rare second transplant, but in the coming days, Jessica was declared brain dead and died in the hospital. Duke University and the family of Jessica reached an undisclosed settlement. Additionally, federal government regulators conducted a thorough investigation of Duke University Hospital, citing them for multiple negligent organ transplant procedures that led to Jessica's death. On January 19, 2006, Sherman Sizemore was admitted to Raleigh General Hospital after complaints of abdominal pain. As he underwent exploratory surgery to pinpoint the cause of the pain, the resident anesthesiologist administered paralyzing drugs to Sherman, but failed to administer the general anesthesia that would render him unconscious and pain-free. As a result, Sherman Sizemore experienced 29 minutes of painful surgery before the doctors noticed and properly administered general anesthesia. Two weeks after his surgery, his daughters claimed that he was deeply traumatized by the experience, suffering nightmares and delusions that people were trying to bury him alive. On February 2nd, Sherman committed suicide by shooting himself. The Sizemore family filed a wrongful death lawsuit on his behalf against Rayleigh Anesthesia Associates, alleging that he was never notified that he hadn't been properly anesthetized, resulting in severe psychological distress leading to a suicide. The suit was quickly settled for an undisclosed amount. 34-year-old Kim Tut took a routine trip to the doctor where she was told she had a rare aggressive form of cancer in her jaw, and that she would only have three to six months to live. The doctors told her that removing a portion of her jaw may extend her life by three more months, so Tut agreed to it. The surgery involved removing her jaw from the left side of her chin to behind her right ear, replacing the bone with a fibula from her leg. A few months after the surgery, however, the doctors called Tut to apologize, explaining her original biopsy was possibly contaminated in the lab, and she never even had cancer. Unfortunately, Kim Tut remained permanently disfigured from the surgery, with a significantly lower quality of life. She filed a medical malpractice lawsuit against the Texas pathologist responsible for improperly diagnosing her condition and won an undisclosed amount. 
There was also a case of medical malpractice in 1932 that caused two people to lose their lives. It all started in Slatton, Texas, on the night of August 25, 1932, around 10.30 p.m., when 24-year-old Haskell Cooper decided to drive drunk. His friend, 23-year-old Dickie Austin, was in the passenger seat when they collided with another vehicle. Inside the other vehicle were 30-year-old Woody Tudor, his wife, and three children, and Woody's brother, Melvin, his wife, and child. They were on their way from their father A.L. Tudor's home en route to the Johnson Ranch when the crash occurred. Woody seemed to be the only one from the second car with a serious injury, so he, along with Haskell, were rushed to town for medical attention. Both cars were badly damaged. Dickie Austin wandered away from the car in a daze after the crash, seeming to not realize what had just happened. By midnight, officers were still searching for Dickie. And a side note, I searched, but could not find any information about him. So I'm guessing he was eventually found safe. Haskell sustained a broken arm and other injuries in the crash. Woody seemed to also have received a broken arm in the crash. He was sitting in the waiting room of Dr. Lovelace's office when his father, A.L. Tudor, heard the news of the accident and rushed to the doctor's office to be with his son. He found his son sitting in the waiting room while Dr. Lovelace was whittling on a stick. A.L. sat down and he and Woody started talking. Woody exclaimed, Dad, I'm sure glad I didn't hurt the baby. A.L. replied back, asking, Why have you been waiting here for so long? We're waiting on Dr. Adams, Woody answered. At this time, Dr. Lovelace called over to Dr. Adams' office and reported back to the tutors that Adams would not be coming over to this office as he was treating two others from the crash. R.L., frustrated, stood up, said, I'll go over there and get him. He walked over to Dr. Adams' office, where he was sitting alone, and said, My goodness, Dr. Adams, get over there and help my boy. Seeming mad, Dr. Adams replied, You're talking to the wrong man. If you want that boy's arm treated, bring him over here. You all know I am the Santa Fe doctor, and you ought to come here for treatment. Ale went back and got his son, and they made their way over to Dr. Adams' office. Once there, Woody informed the doctor by stating, Dr. Adams, I'm afraid to take ether. Dr. Miller over at Clovis told me not to take the anesthesia ether, as my heart would never stand it and never to take it. Yes, you can stand it, Dr. Adams told Woody. Ale jumped in saying, Doctor, if that boy can't stand ether, don't give it to him. I can stand it without the ether, Woody said. But Dr. Adams explained, We'll have to give it. Let's get going and get it over with. 
Dr. Lovelace assisted Adams in treating Woody. As they began to give the ether, Woody repeated, I love my daddy, I love my daddy, over and over again. Those were the last words A.L. would ever hear his son say, as his son lost consciousness and never woke up. A man named Tom Abel came out of the room and told A.L., The boy's gone, and Dr. Adams got that thing and put it on his chest, and then he started working his arms up and down and mashing his chest. A.L. ran into the room yelling, My gosh, doctors, do something for that boy. And then he walked around to his son's face and pleaded, Son, come out of it, come out of it. He looked at Dr. Loveless and asked, What do you figure caused his death? Loveless stated, It was likely a clot of blood on the brain. No, it wasn't. You doctors killed him, Ale shot back at the doctors. It was reported by Dr. Loveless that Woody Tudor's death was caused by shock and hemorrhage following injuries. He was laid to rest at the Inglewood Cemetery in Slatton. Family and friends gathered in the small cemetery and remembered the young man who adored his mom, his wife, his children, but most of all, his father. Woody Tudor and his father, A.L., had a very close relationship. Woody would come by his parents' house daily to chat. Woody's widow was able to collect $2,000 in insurance, but this seemed to go towards covering the costs of the funeral and to help pay off the Tudor family's home. A.L., in mourning, wanted to make Dr. Adams pay for the death of his son and was attempting to make a case for negligence. In October, Tudor was set to go in front of a grand jury on the case against the doctor on Monday, October 17th, but A.L. felt he should try to talk to Adams first. So on October 13th, 1932, two months after his son's death, A.L. Tudor walked into Dr. Adams' office around 4 o'clock p.m., Adams was sitting at his desk when A.L. started talking, saying, Dr. Adams, some of the grand jurymen want me to talk to them Monday, and I don't want to see you go to the penitentiary. I just want some sort of settlement. Then he asked, What are you going to do about those babies? Adams replied, saying, I'm not going to do anything. You need to get out and stay out. And then it seemed he was reaching for something in his drawer. A.L. panicked, pulled out his gun, and shot Adams in the right arm. Adams got back up and started toward A.L. with his hands up. A.L. yelled, Don't come toward me! I don't want to shoot you! Adams kept toward him, so A.L. kept shooting until the doctor fell on his knees. He then went out the door and gave himself up. Dr. Sam Houston Adams, 58, died from shock produced by tremor of the wounds. 
Dr. Adams was appointed as the local surgeon in 1911 by the Athesina, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad for a new town being developed 15 miles south in Lubbock. In 1915, Adams and his wife helped to establish the first Methodist church in Slatton. The couple went on to help build Slatton's first school, where Dr. Adams served many years as a member of the school board and 12 years as its chairman. He also had two daughters. A.L. Tudor went on trial in December 1932. He was found guilty of murder with malice and was given a sentence of two years in prison. In February 1934, Governor Miriam A. Ferguson gave A.L. Tudor a conditional pardon. I want to say a huge thank you to texasescapes.com, newspapers.com, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas True Crime podcast. Next week, I'll be detailing a case from the year 1933. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. I would also love for you to rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.